Hi, and welcome to Failureology, a podcast about engineering failures. I'm your host, Nicole. And I'm Brian, and we're both from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Like we said last week, our podcast journey has been a heck of a ride, and we are incredibly thankful for all of your support throughout the course of our show, especially to those who support our Patreon. But we decided we needed it. But we decided we needed a bit of a break this summer from recording. Personally, I'm going to take some time off, do a little bit of hiking in the mountains, which are 45 minutes away from where Nicole and I live. And I'm out playing beach volleyball. But we didn't want to stop giving you those engineering failures you know and love. So today we're sharing some more of our mini failures. We're going to share six of our mini failures over the next three episodes. So these mini failures come from our environmental disaster series that we did on our Patreon last fall. And the first two that you heard were the Love Canal and Minamata. And the next two we're going to share with you are the Bhopal gas leak and asbestos. Due to malfunctioning safety systems and a lack of safety culture, many people in Bhopal, India were poisoned and their lives impacted and substantially changed forever. And asbestos kind of speaks for itself. Those deadly little fibers that are in seemingly everything can lay dormant for decades before they wreak havoc. So without further ado, here's our mini failure on the Bhopal gas leak with the asbestos episode to follow right afterwards. Hi and welcome to Failureology, a podcast about engineering failures. I'm your host Nicole. And I'm Brian, and we're both from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Welcome to our 30th mini failure episode. That is 10 episodes away from our midlife crisis mini failure episode, which might be sports car failure related for episode number 40. I think we can make that happen. I'm pretty sure there's been sports cars that have had engineering failures. Yes, for sure. For sure. We're bringing you engineering failures in bite-sized pieces. Make no mistake though. These are still significant failures, but they either have pretty straightforward causes or not enough information available for a full episode of Failureology. These episodes are also just the failure, no news, and no ads. For now, at least. It's like Failureology light. And this week's mini-failure is about the Bhopal gas tragedy. The third in a series of at least four, now five, environmental disasters. We've talked about the Love Canal. Minamata disease, and now on this episode, we're talking about the Bhopal gas tragedy. The Bhopal gas tragedy occurred on the night of December 2nd into December 3rd, 1984, in Bhopal, India. Over 500,000 people were exposed to methyl isocyanate gas while it was making its way around to all of the small towns located near the pesticide plant that was the source of the gas leak. The Official number of immediate deaths from the gas leak is 2,259, which is a lot of people. The government paid compensation to 3,787 victims' family members and 574,355 injured victims in 2008. A lot of people were impacted by this incident. So where Nicole and I live in Calgary... There's just under a million and a half people, I believe, that live here. So that would be a third of our entire city being impacted by this. Yeah, this was really tragic. And we're going to get into it here. But this one gives me nuclear reactor meltdown vibes in that 
things started to go sideways and everyone just thought, oh, that's fine. It's fine. Nothing to see here. And then all of a sudden, once everyone else realized what was going on, it was kind of too late. And so that's really, really tragic. The accident itself, which was preventable, didn't have to get so bad had they raise the flag as soon as the leak occurred they could have prevented a lot of death and tragedy but they didn't react appropriately and they allowed this gas to spread to areas that were heavily populated they didn't give people time to evacuate they didn't give them time to shelter in place people were coming out of their homes to see what all the commotion was and essentially getting poisoned by the air around them which is really unfortunate and frustrating this one was definitely a frustrating one to to research. So the pesticide factory was built in 1969 to produce pesticide with methyl isocyanate as an intermediate. The process included methylamine reacting with phosgene to create the methyl isocyanate, which then reacted with 1-naphthol to create the final product, carbaryl. It's a lot of chemical words that I have not pronounced in a very long time. If I pronounced any of them wrong... I'm sorry. I tried. Sorry, chemistry people that listen to our podcast. We'll try better next time. Sorry. Oh my God, we sound so Canadian. There were other ways to get the same end product, the carbol, without the methyl isocyanate, but they were more expensive to produce. And so no surprise here, this production team wanted to take the most cost-effective route. While demand for pesticides fell in the early 80s, production carried on, leading to lots of storage of unused methyl isocyanate at the Bhopal plant. There had been a number of issues and smaller incidents in and around the plant in the years leading up to the major gas leak that occurred in December 1984, which led to chemical burns and in some cases death. So there had been other incidents at this plant that were severe to at least the people in the immediate vicinity. The facility included three underground storage tanks for the methyl isocyanate, each capable of holding 68,000 liters. The tanks were only allowed to be fitted with the methyl isocyanate to a max of 50% and were then filled with inert nitrogen gas, keeping out impurities and moisture, while still allowing the methyl isocyanate to be pumped out as needed. In October 1984, one of the tanks lost its ability to contain the inert nitrogen and the liquid methyl isocyanate couldn't be pumped out. By December, most of the plant safety systems were non-functional. That's what I want to hear. I feel that's a little bit of foreshadowing happening right here. If you have a plant that produces chemicals, you should probably have all of the safety systems operating. That's what they're there for. Oh, yeah. And we've seen this before time and time again. It's it's not it's certainly not funny, but it's so ridiculous that I can't help but laugh a little bit. Like, what did you think was going to happen, guys? Yeah, like if you don't want your plant to show up on our show, make sure your safety systems are operating. Exactly. <laughs> so in addition to these safety systems that weren't operating, several vent gas scrubbers and a steam boiler meant to clean the pipes were out of service. So that's even more things that aren't working in a plant and they should be working in a plant. Late on December 2nd, 1984, water entered the tank via a side pipe that was being repaired. The water created a runaway exothermic reaction with the methyl isocyanate. Within 30 minutes, the pressure in the tank went from 2 psi to 10 psi. Workers at the time thought the gauge was malfunctioning, which again is something that we've talked about on this show before. Yeah, when the safety systems break down, 
like we're seeing at this plant, we, we, the operators lose trust in them. They start to not believe even the things that are working properly because they no longer have a good, they no longer have a good understanding of what works and what doesn't. So they don't really trust anything and it allows for stuff like this to go ignored, which is unfortunate. Yeah, so as they're ignoring this uh, throughout the evening, as it rolls into night, by 11.30 p.m., they start to feel unwell and they begin to look for a leak. At 12.40 a.m. on the morning of December 3rd, just after tea break, that for some reason was deemed necessary, the tank had reached a critical state. Temperatures had reached 25 degrees Celsius and pressure was up to 40 PSI. So pressures increased quite a bit, um, you know, since the night before. This is trending in a direction that it shouldn't be trending in. So at this point, the emergency relief valve burst open and started venting toxic methyl isocyanate gas. And the pressure in the tank continued to increase to 55 PSI. Remember, this is a runaway exothermic reaction. Um, so the temperatures and the pressures will just continue to increase. There were three safety devices that were, surprise, surprise, not functioning or insufficiently sized. There was a refrigeration system that was meant to cool the tanks, but it was shut down in January 1982, so almost three years before this happened, and the Freon or refrigerant was removed in June 1984. Without the refrigeration to cool the tanks, the 11 degrees Celsius high temperature alarm was long since disconnected and storage temperatures ranged between 15 and 40 degrees Celsius. So to recap, the high limit alarm was set for 11 degrees Celsius. But since the cooling system was removed, the average temperature was 15 to 40 degrees Celsius, which is 3 to 29 degrees above the high limit alarm. That on its own is a concern. Secondly, a flare tower used to burn the gas if it leaked was down for maintenance and was also too small to neutralize the leak produced. So the, the flare tower, which is meant to burn that gas so you don't poison anybody, was both too small and not working. And lastly, a vent gas scrubber was deactivated and didn't have enough caustic soda and power to safely stop the leak produced. So again, the gas scrubber, which was meant to prevent poisoning of thousands of people, was not set up properly to react to this leak, which again is a huge problem. And I don't think all of these together, of course, led to this catastrophic event, but I'd like to think that if even one of those was working, you could have at least mitigated the disastrous outcome a little bit, like maybe not a ton, but maybe a little. Just one win here would be nice. Just the smallest, tiniest little win would be nice. But it, no, this is just all kinds of bad. 30 tons of methyl isocyanate escaped from the tank in 45 to 60 minutes. And another 10 tons escaped in the hour after that. Due to the wind direction at the time, the gas was directed to the southeast straight over Bhopal. The alarm was triggered at 12.50 a.m., about 10 minutes after the emergency relief valve burst open. But since the alarm inside the plant was decoupled from the one outside the plant, which was meant to alert the public, evacuation didn't start until sometime after 2 a.m., so well over an hour after the emergency relief valve burst and all of this gas was leaked into the atmosphere, well over an hour after that, the public was, was notified of this. Residents near the plant saw workers fleeing and they called the police, but when the, when the police called the plant at 1.25 a.m. and again at 2.10 a.m., they said everything was okay. 
The majority of residents in Bhopal were notified of the gas leak by being exposed to the gas itself or opening their doors to see what all the commotion was about. They should have either had the opportunity to evacuate before the gas arrived or been instructed to shelter in place, and doing so would have saved a lot of lives. So initial effects from this gas leak were coughing, severe eye irritation, uncontrollable eyelid twitching, a feeling of suffocation, burning in the respiratory tract, breathlessness, stomach pains, and vomiting. None of those sound fun at all. Since methyl isocyanate is twice as dense as air, the short folks inhaled higher concentrations of this poisonous gas. Thousands died by the following morning from choking, reflexogenic circulatory collapse, and pulmonary edema. Individuals that survived the initial leak were exposed to cancers, blindness, loss of livelihood, and financial strain. The gas cloud was believed to contain chloroform, dichloromethane, hydrogen chloride, methylamine, dimethylamine, trimethylamine, and carbon dioxide that was either present in the tank or was produced in the storage tank when the methyl isocyanate, chloroform, and water react. The healthcare system obviously became immediately overloaded in the affected area. Medical staff were unprepared for all the casualties, and they were also not trained for methyl isocyanate gas inhalation. So one more factor in this whole chain of unfortunate events, all these things happen because of a lack of systems that are present or things that have been disabled, but then the medical system in a town where this plant is, isn't trained to deal with a lot of the exposure from a very common intermediary step that in this chemical or in this fertilizer production. So there are two theories about how this leak happened. The first is corporate negligence led to under-maintained and decaying facilities, a weak attitude towards safety, and under-trained staff that led to water getting into the storage tank without the proper safeguards or leak mitigation features. And the second theory is worker sabotage. The plant's owners argue that it's not possible for water to get into the tank without human effort, and workers were cleaning out a clogged pipe with water about 120 meters from the tank, but they claim they were not told to isolate the tank. And now, even if worker sabotage was at play, there still should have been safety features to prevent the gas from leaking to atmosphere and poisoning literally hundreds of thousands of people. And so while worker sabotage sure could be possible i i mean i don't know i wasn't there even if it was the case there are still so many other things that could have prevented this catastrophic leak that weren't there because of the decaying facilities that were under maintained the lax the lax attitude towards safety and all of these leak mitigation features that weren't functional so there you have it the bhopal gas leak disaster in india Due to malfunctioning safety systems and a lack of safety culture, many people were poisoned and the lives of their families were impacted forever. Thanks for listening to this mini failure episode. For our regular episodes, check out Failureology wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to chat with us, our Twitter handle is at Failureology. You can email us at thefailureologypodcast at gmail.com. You can connect with us on LinkedIn, or you can message us right in the Patreon app. And there are links to all of these in the show notes. Also, reminder that we have a dedicated RSS feed for our Patreon episodes, so you can listen to all of our content in your regular podcast app. Reach out if you need help setting that up. Bye, everyone. Talk soon. 
Hi, and welcome to Failureology, a podcast about engineering failures. I'm your host, Nicole. And I'm Brian, and we're both from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Welcome to our 31st mini failure episode. We're bringing you engineering failures in bite-sized pieces. Make no mistake though, these are still significant failures, but they either have pretty straightforward causes or not enough information for a full episode of Failureology. These episodes are also just the failure, no news, and no ads, for now at least. It's pretty much Failureology light. This week's mini-failure is about asbestos, the fourth in a series of at least five, maybe six, possibly more episodes about environmental disasters. We've talked about the Love Canal, Minamata, and the Bhopal gas disaster so far in this very short mini-episode, mini-failure series. This episode is about the carcinogenic fibrous material, not the town in Quebec, although we'll certainly talk about the town a little bit. So just as a side note, when I was much younger than I am today, which was a really long time ago, I thought, when I first heard about asbestos, I thought it had something to do with what people said after you sneezed. So I was incredibly confused about the health risks associated with that. So I thought there was some health risk with saying words to people after they sneezed. So I just didn't say anything to anyone when they sneezed. So people told me I was rude. Later on, I figured out asbestos is different than bless you or God bless you or a chew. So I I was kind of confused as a kid. I'm still a little confused now. I've never heard that before. That's a really funny story. It was just the way that I heard it. It was uh, in my little kid brain. I was like, I conflated saying something to somebody after they sneeze to doing long-term damage, health damage. It, it was very confusing to me as a kid, but I figured it was one of those weird adult things I didn't understand. Turns out I was completely wrong. I think we've all done that as kids. It's just how kid brains work. Yeah. It, Thank you for sharing your story. You're you're more than welcome. And now hundreds, thousands of people know about my story as being confused as a little kid. I'll probably share more stories about me being confused as a little kid and possibly as an adult. Back to asbestos. Asbestos is a group of six naturally occurring fibrous silicate minerals made up of heat, electricity, and corrosion-resistant fibers that have been used in insulation, they've been used as a fire retardant, they've been used in flooring and brake pads, a whole host of other consumer products. And honestly, asbestos sounds like an amazing product. It addresses a lot of issues. It's a fairly simple material to work with. It's just really, really dangerous for humans. So uh, catch-22, it's really unfortunate that a product that is such a good insulator, a really good fire retardant is also so hazardous to us. Yeah, I I feel that asbestos is not the only material like this where it has all of these great, amazing properties, but then there's also some health risks or environmental risks or a combination of health, environment, and safety risks. But we're talking about asbestos. Inhalation of asbestos fibers, which are generally released when the asbestos is disturbed, Um, They lead to various dangerous lung conditions such as lung cancer, mesothelioma, asbestosis. Yeah. Dating back to the Stone Age with large-scale mining beginning around 1900, asbestos, like I mentioned, it's a great insulator, great fire retardant, but due to its nasty health effects, its use has been significantly reduced in North America since the 1980s 
after health effects were more widely acknowledged um, in the 1970s. So Canada completely banned import of asbestos in 2018. Which seems like a really long time to take to ban asbestos. And industry was aware much earlier than the public of the health effects, the negative health effects of asbestos. And we're going to talk about this also in the next episode. But industry knew that there was a problem, but they were making so much money with this product that they wanted to keep selling it. And so they tried to keep those dangers a secret from the general public for quite some time. And that's why it took so long to completely ban the import of asbestos in Canada and several other countries. Yeah, um, certainly um, where I went to university or college for our American listeners, the university I went to was constructed in the nineteen late 1960s, early 1970s. So there was still quite a lot of asbestos that was present in the buildings and in the classrooms that were there. So I feel like every semester there'd be more rooms that were kind of cordoned off or quarantined for asbestos removal and um, they'd be taped off and um, they'd kind of go through the remediation process, but we just couldn't use those classrooms or lecture halls for a period of time until they cleaned out all the, all the asbestos. So besides Canada banning it in 2018, Australia banned it in 2003, the United Kingdom banned it in 1999. So still a fairly long time after you know, countries and health authorities were aware of all of the negative effects of asbestos or negative health effects it was having on people. Unfortunately, the U.S. has still not completely banned asbestos. So the Environmental Protection Agency, or the EPA that we've talked about numerous times on on this podcast, they issued a ban and phase-out rule in 1989, but in 1991, this was overturned after industry supporters challenged it in a landmark lawsuit. Asbestos is a regulated substance, and it's been banned in specific products or applications, but some still legally allow trace amounts of asbestos. I think just, just kind of reading about asbestos, I haven't seen any positive, I, I guess, positive health effects of it. I, you know, I recognize that there's, you know, great things it can do on the um, you know, on the insulation side and the fire retardant side of things. But as we'll talk about it, we, we feel that the health risks to everyone that's exposed to it far outweigh the, the beneficial side of the, the fire side of things and the insulation side of things. Yeah, so health experts have said that no amount of asbestos exposure is safe, and that's why it's been fully banned in several countries. Uh, but for the most part, the higher the concentration or the longer a period of time, the worse the exposure. And that's because asbestos fibers accumulate in the body every time you're exposed, and there's no way to reverse it or for your body to remove those fibers. Uh, this is, of course, made worse by the fact that the fibers are easy to inhale once they're airborne. That's why when you're doing a renovation project, if you're not disturbing the asbestos or you're not moving it or changing it in any way, it's typically allowed to remain, at least on projects I've been in. Don't quote me on that. I'm not an expert in that field, but that's what I've seen happen. Whereas if you're doing a renovation where you're changing the flooring and it's got the nine by nine asbestos tiles in it, or you're removing some piping or ductwork that has asbestos in the insulation, you have to abate all of that asbestos before you can carry on with the demolition. Um, and, this, and abatement has been a significant part of a lot of the renovation projects that I've worked on over the last 15 years, um, just making sure that, that that hazardous material is removed from the project or the building before workers continue on with the renovation project. 
You can also get secondary exposure of asbestos, and that's when someone carries the fibers on their clothing, and then those fibers are inhaled by other people who weren't near the initial exposure point. And that's why the people who are remediating asbestos wear those white Tyvek suits because they want to contain as many of the fibers as possible and they have to go through a clean room and I believe a showering process to an extent to make sure that they remove all of those fibers from their person before going out into the world and potentially exposing other people. The U.S. military specifically used asbestos extensively from the 1930s to 1970s, especially in naval ships, which has led, unfortunately, to a high amount of asbestos-related diseases among veterans. There was also a concern that residents and workers in the area of the World Trade Center collapse were exposed to high levels of asbestos, among a lot of other hazards. And it's believed that more than a thousand tons of asbestos were released into the air when the towers came down, which just puts a really unfortunate spin on an already extremely tragic event. So in addition to the hazards that Nicole mentioned for remediation projects or the unfortunate case of September 11th and the World Trade Center collapse, there are additional environmental exposures um, if you live near an asbestos mine or an asbestos processing facility. One example of that is Asbestos Quebec, known as Valdezorsis since December 15th, 2020. Asbestos was located about 150 kilometers east of Montreal. This town, it's the site of the Jeffrey Mine, which used to be the world's largest asbestos mine, and the Magnola Magnesium Refinery, which is now closed. It was also the site of the 1949 asbestos strike. So the strike, it was a four-month labor dispute that was one of the most violent and bitter labor disputes in Quebec and in Canadian history. And the the strike had nothing to do with the dangerous effects of asbestos because that was unknown at the time. It was related to working conditions and pay and and things that a lot of factory workers strike about that we've we've seen for decades, just poor working conditions, but not necessarily related to the asbestos material itself. Yeah, I've, I've had the fortune of doing a couple mine-related tours for, you know, iron mines or copper mines. I've never done an asbestos mine tour, but as interesting as the mine tours are, um, and I really like doing them, the working conditions, I can't imagine some of the working conditions, especially back in the, you know, in the 1940s or the 1930s or the 1950s, when a lot of that was still done, you know, in a fairly manual process, or I guess a labor intensive process before a lot of modern mining equipment was implemented into into mining. So yeah, definitely, definitely a good thing I think to strike about is, you know, working conditions and health and safety and just over yeah just overall the mine was probably not a great place that for people to work so today there are still over a million tons of asbestos mined worldwide with russia being the largest producer at 53 percent followed by kazakhstan at 16 percent china at 15 percent and brazil at 11 and a half percent china india and indonesia are the largest consumers representing almost 70 percent of the global market As early as the late 19th century, scattered reports on the health risks of asbestos emerged in Canada, Europe, and the U.S., and by the 1920s, leading medical journals had published articles linking asbestos to asbestosis, which is 
a new and sometimes fatal lung condition where inhaled asbestos scars the lungs and makes breathing difficult. By new, I mean new at that time. It's not new anymore. The disease was a serious problem for asbestos workers, no surprise there. They often worked in thick clouds of asbestos dust each day. Even in the 1920s, doctors believe asbestosis could be prevented by limiting exposure to asbestos. It would take several decades, however, before asbestos was properly regulated in the U.S. amongst many other countries, and workers learned their jobs could lead to cancer and other serious health complications years down the line. So that's the thing. Asbestos lays dormant in your body until you accumulate enough of it that you start to see these health effects. And so you could be exposed and not, you could be exposed and have a high level of exposure and not really see the effects for 10, 20 years. And so that becomes really challenging. And that's something we've seen with some of these lawsuits is tying that health effect back to the initial cause when the health effect happens so much later, so many years down the road. And it's really challenging legally to tie the cause and effect together when there's such a time span in between. Ultimately, though, asbestos manufacturers have been held liable for the diseases their products cause because they covered up evidence of asbestos's health effects and continued exposing workers and consumers, which is... I mean, silver lining, they eventually, their trickery eventually caught up with them and they were eventually held liable, but it doesn't undo all of the damage that they did continually exposing workers and consumers to their products for decades. Former employees of asbestos production companies are filing lawsuits against them and so are the workers who used asbestos products on the job. Family members who develop mesothelioma through secondhand exposure are also eligible to file a legal claim. People with mesothelioma can be compensated through multiple legal options, including trust funds established by the asbestos companies before they went bankrupt, which is a good thing that they were able to collect that money and put it in trust before it was all gone. And hundreds of thousands of patients and families have sought compensation for illnesses caused by the negligence of the asbestos industry over the years. And these claims hold the industry liable for the harm they've caused and provide the much-needed compensation to cover medical bills and lost wages. The compensation is the financial award paid to patients and family members, and the average settlement is about $1 to $1.4 million per person, and the asbestos trust funds can pay more than 150000 And I, I found this information from a website that offers information about people interested in filing a claim against the asbestos industry, which I thought was interesting. Of course, it's probably a little bit biased, but I did think it was interesting that it provided this type of statistic and this pot- potential outcome of those that have been exposed. So there you have it, asbestos. Deadly little fibers that are in seemingly everything and can lay dormant for decades before wrecking havoc. If you think you have asbestos in your house, we highly recommend that you get it abated. Thanks for listening to this mini failure episode. For our regular episodes, check out Failureology wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to chat with us, our Twitter handle is at Failureology. You can email us at thefailureologypodcast at gmail.com. You can connect with us on LinkedIn, or you can message us right in the Patreon app. There are links to all of these in the show notes. Bye, everyone. Talk soon.